Hi, my name is Craig Foster, and this evening I'm interviewing Les Langford. And uh, what we're going to do, Les, is um, just uh, perhaps you could give some background, you know, uh, where were you born, where did you grow up, and a little bit uh, about uh, how you went into law enforcement and just kind of a quick overview of your career in law enforcement. So I was born and raised in southeastern Idaho, Montpelier, Idaho. Uh, I went to school at Idaho State in 1968, and uh, I actually joined the LDS Church while I was up at Idaho State. I uh, went in the Marine Corps in 1969. I'm a Vietnam veteran. I got out of the Marine Corps in 1972, and I knew that I wanted to go into law enforcement. At that time, I applied for and was hired by the Utah Highway Patrol. I worked for the Utah Highway Patrol from 1972 to 2002, so I did 30 years with them. That's great. All right. Well, thank you. Um, so what I want to do is uh, to ask a few questions about your uh, experiences, given that you that you joined the church eventually. You know, so you were LDS as you were a highway patrolman. What, if anything at all, was the religious atmosphere of the Utah Highway Patrol? And do you think that the LDS Church had significant influence um, in either the, the Highway Patrol or perhaps even the American Pork Police Department, if you uh, knew people in the police department? So actually, uh, when I hired on in 1972, I was quite surprised that... Uh there was uh, not a closer relationship with the church. In fact, uh, there was quite a bit of activity that I thought wasn't appropriate, such as drinking. Uh, for example, they'd have conventions, and my wife and I would go to these police conventions, and there'd be three big vats of, of cold beer, and there wasn't anything for the kids. Mm -hmm. And that was the atmosphere from through the 70s, clear up into the mid-80s, 1980s. Uh, that's since changed, and I'm grateful for that. A lot of this is based on the the series um, under the banner of heaven, but in the um, in the TV series, the police detectives and the officers uh, refer to each other as brother and sister, and even uh, to um, to the suspects as brother. And uh, given my limited knowledge with um, uh, with law enforcement officials. I had never seen that happen before. And I'm wondering, did you see that happen? Was this a common thing? Never in 30 years. Okay. Not with any agency okay. did I ever see that. Before your first encounter with Dan Lafferty, were you aware of the Lafferty family? Did you Had you heard about them by reputation or or um, seen advertisements for Watson Lafferty's uh, uh, chiropractic service or anything dealing with the uh, Lafferty family? I knew nothing about the Lafferty family. Uh, before my first contact with Dan, I did read an article that he had published in the newspaper, an editorial about his constitutional views in regards to law enforcement and the laws that are current were on the books at that time. And that was my first exposure. He was running for sheriff, and he'd written an editorial saying that majority of the laws on the books were unconstitutional because they prohibited life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Uh, he said that the only 
legal law enforcement in the, in the state was the elected sheriff. All others were appointed by the executive branch and therefore had no jurisdiction or not legal. And that's why he was running for sheriff. And if he made sheriff, he wanted to eliminate a lot of the laws that he felt were unconstitutional. Hmm. You know, this is a good moment to perhaps ask, and and I don't know how much you uh, know about the constitutionalism movement, uh, uh, but I understand that, um, you know, in the in the 80s at least, perhaps even into the 70s and, and later in the 80s, there have there have been some individuals who obviously kind of felt the same way as as uh, Dan Lafferty. Could you, uh, if you're aware of of that, is that is it prevalent here in uh, Utah County? And and um, if so, what uh, what is, what do you know about it? That article that I read, and then my subsequent contact with Dan Lafferty was the first exposure I'd ever had about constitutionalism. Since that time, I've had several contacts and I've had several uh, run-ins, or you might say, or dealings with constitutionalists and their views, uh, mm-hmm. both on the law enforcement perspective, also up at the legislature in some of the bills that were introduced before the legislature. Okay. Um, and do you know, if, if is there... A big following, or uh, or do you not know that? Well, I don't know that at this time. At the time of the Lafferty incident, there was a huge following, and I didn't realize that until we started going to court, and there was huge crowds that would come hmm. and actually disrupt court. Um, as Lafferty was convicted of various crimes, and then he went out and does a double murder, uh, his following greatly was reduced. I can well imagine. Perhaps you could... Uh, tell us about the different encounters you had with Dan Lafferty. Just kind of uh, set up uh, a little bit of a chronology of of your encounters with Dan Lafferty. So like I say, it was the summer of 1982. Dan was running for sheriff, had written an editorial. I had read the editorial, and within just a very few days, I pulled the vehicle over for speeding, and I walked up, asked the gentleman who was driving, for driver's license. He said he didn't believe in driver's licenses. And uh, we had a short conversation and I asked him for his name. He said his name is Dan Lafferty. I says, oh, I read your editorial. You're running for sheriff. And he seemed to brighten right up. And you, you read it? Yes, I do. It did. And I understand your position. Uh, of course, I didn't tell him I disagreed with him. I uh, issued a citation uh, for speeding. I believe I also issued one for uh, no safety inspection. I'm not positive on that. When I walked back up with a citation, he says, I'm not going to sign it. And I says, your signature is only your promise to appear. He said, if I don't sign it, what will you do? And I said, well, I could arrest you. And he says, okay. And he took the ticket and he wrote all over the ticket. He wrote all in the margins and he wrote everywhere, but he never did sign it. And what he was writing was, I waive none of my constitutional rights signed under threat of imprisonment, things like that. He never did sign it. I just stood there and let him write all over the ticket. I thought the judge is going to see this. And then I gave him his copy and I left. And uh, that was my first encounter. A few couple of months later, I stopped him a second time, had the same encounter. 
I was talking with another trooper. His name was Gary Johnson. And he said he had the same encounter with Dan Lafferty. So we knew that he'd been issued three citations. Uh, we made an agreement if anybody else stops Lafferty, or we checked on the citations. He hadn't appeared on any of them. He had three warrants for his arrest. They were misdemeanors. And we agreed that if anybody stopped him uh, the fourth time, that we would arrest him. And I am driving southbound I-15 in Orm in a fully marked police car. And Lafferty passes me going 20 over the speed limit. I radioed for backup. I said, I'm going to be stopping Dan Lafferty. And I need some backup. And uh, dispatchers knew what the situation was. They sent two troopers out. I pulled Lafferty over. I had a good conversation with him. Uh, he called me by name and uh, said, you know, in my position, I says, yes, I do. I understand it. I might add each time I stopped him, he would only roll his window down a short, a very small distance. And um, again, I issued a citation. It was a forced citation. And uh, then I told him, I says, Mr. Lafferty, step out of the vehicle. And he says, no. And I says, Mr. Lafferty, I'm placing you under arrest. You have warrants out for your arrest. And he says, no. And I turned to the officer who was standing next to me, and I says, go call a wrecker. My intention was I would just hook on his car and haul the car and him off. As soon as I said, go call a wrecker, he dropped the car in gear and took off. We jumped in our cars. We took out after him. We did what's called a boxing technique. I could tell that he did not want to uh, damage his car because when I would get close, he would pull away. We ended up doing a boxing technique where we had an officer in front, one behind and one to the side of him. And the place where we did the boxing technique was their steep embankment on the shoulder of the road. Once we got him stopped, my intention was I was just going to go over and break the driver's window and take him out in custody. I have broken several windows before with a nightstick, very easy. Uh, unfortunately, one of the troopers, his name was Charlie Wilson, took his handcuffs, reached in that open window about four or five inches, and placed a handcuff on Lafferty's left wrist. And as soon as he did that, I thought, Charlie, don't do that. Don't put your hands in the window. Lafferty reached over and rolled the window up on Charlie's arms. And uh, I had my nightstick and I started beating on the window. And my intention was to break the glass. But with Charlie's arms in there, all I was doing was damaging Charlie's arms. He was absorbing the shock. In fact, I hit the window so hard that I slid off the window and hit the side of the d door. And this white station wagon, I had there were black marks on the door from where I was hitting the window and sliding off onto the door. Uh, Lafferty cranked the wheel hard to the right and drove right off that embankment with Charlie pinned in the windows. Uh, the car almost rolled. It came up on two wheels. I thought if that car rolls, Charlie's dead. And uh, at that point, I actually pulled my firearm out and I thought I can't get a clean shot. That officer's life is in danger but there's no way I could shoot. I reholstered the weapon. The car came back down on all four wheels, and when it hit, the jar knocked Charlie loose, and he landed on the ground. Lafferty continued to drive down the steep embankment. He paralleled the fence that parallels the freeway, continued on down the bar pit, and then pulled back up on the freeway. The officer that was with me was called Mike Reese, and uh, 
He ran down to see how Charlie was doing, and I jumped in my car and took out after Lafferty again. Uh, Lafferty turned sideways into the road and stopped perpendicular to the traffic. I thought he'd cause an accident. He shut down the whole freeway. He jumped out of his car, and he was running up to the cars that were there saying, help, stop, be a witness. Uh, one of the vehicles that was stopped, the driver of the vehicle, contacted us later on and said, I'll be a witness. He scared me to death. He almost wrecked my vehicle, and I was locking doors and rolling windows up. I ran over at that time, and I placed him under arrest. Once I had Dan in custody, I put him in my patrol car, and I says, Dan, you've been a perfect gentleman up to this point. Why in the world did you act the way that you just did? And at that point, Dan told me, go and read Doctrine and Covenants 98. I had not was not familiar with Doctrine and Covenants 98, but in that, he said it's the fourth time. And Doctrine and Covenants 98 refers to turning the cheek the first time, turning the second time, turning the third time, but on the fourth time, you can resist. And uh, he said it was the fourth time. He was charged with assault on a police officer, escape, fleeing, evading. He was charged with several crimes, several of which were felonies. Uh, he asked for jury trials on all of the court cases, including all the speeding cases that led up to this incident. Uh, the very first hearing that uh, was held, because the first the case that I just told you about was a felony, it requires a preliminary hearing, and they disrupted the court. And they were led by his brother, Ron Lafferty, and they actually had to shut the court down, and they had to rep remand uh, Dan back to custody and uh, to jail. And this, I met with the crowd outside the courtroom and told Ron, standing there toe-to-toe -to -toe with him, saying, Ron, I want Dan to be able to tell his story. I want him to be able to tell about his opinions about the Constitution. But you can't do it if you disrupt the court hearings. You've got to be able to have this in an orderly fashion. So that was my first contact with his brother, Ron. Uh, during several, one of the court cases, which was held in the old county building in Provo, uh, Ron brought a brass band and they were playing the theme for Lafferty, or the theme for Rocky. And uh, Dan came in dancing just like Sylvester Stallone in the movie Rocky, and they were playing that music. Um, each of the court cases, Dan refused uh, a counsel. He could have been appointed counsel by the state. He said he wanted to be his own attorney. And during his, he even took the stand and testified, and he said he likened the Utah High Patrol to the Gestapo, uh, German Gestapo said it was a police state that they were uh, enforcing unconstitutional laws uh, criticized our uniform and the way that we did things and his closing arguments to the jury was I want you to go into that jury room and I want you to pray about this every jury came back and said we did and we found him guilty he was found guilty on every charge, on everything. The final court, which was the big one with the felonies, it's district court. He was found guilty of all charges. The judge told him, 
I could give you probation. You have no criminal record. I don't know what has happened here. Dan said, I would not recognize the authority. I do not recognize the authority of this court. I will not report to a probation officer. I will not do anything this court requests. The judge says, I have no choice then to send you to prison. And he sentenced him to one to, uh, one to five years in prison. Yeah. Um, that was December of 1982. And that Christmas, his mother called me three times at my house and said, my son is in prison. I hope you can live with yourself. You're certainly not a Christian. And she called me three times. And uh, when Dan went to uh, prison, they did a psychological evaluation on him. It came back mentally unstable, capable of anything. And after 75 days in custody, they released him. And he never reported to a probation officer. And it was at that point that Ron and Dan grew a beard and started their uh, criminal activity, I would call it. Yeah. What, if anything, had you heard about uh, Mormon fundamentalists in Utah County uh, to that point? Had you heard very, very, very much? little? And the reason I say that, I mentioned I didn't join the church until I was in college at age 18. Mm-hmm. At age 19, I'm in the Marine Corps. At age 22, I'm on the Utah Higher Patrol. I never took classes in religion, right. so to speak. Right. In fact, uh, my wife and I, after I retired, served an LDS mission. And it was then that I really started dealing into studying the early church history. Mm-hmm. I was busy raising a family and, and fulfilling a Making career. Making a living, yeah. Making a living. <laughs> and uh, I did not know that much about early church history or mm-hmm. fundamentalism or any of that kind of okay. stuff. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, and it was in this uh, School of the Prophets where Ron Lafferty uh, produced uh, for the group his revelation um Revelation uh, to um, to basically get uh, certain individuals out of the way, um, <clears throat> with Brenda and Erica being on the list. Um, and um, if I remember correctly, were you on the list also? Well, that's a, that's a point that I need to be careful on because I was told I was on the list. I never saw the list. Okay. I was told I was number six on the list. Okay. And the detectives that were investigating it, uh, Gary Caldwell, mm-hmm. who's now dead, was the one that told me after they had found his journal and found his writings that uh, I was number six on the list. But that's hearsay. I right. never saw that actually. But I was told that. Wow. That's kind of a good segue into... The, the murders of Brenda and Erica Lafferty, and I realized that you, know, you, you were not directly uh, involved with the case. And so at any point, if you feel that you don't know the answer or whatever, that's fine. But I'll, I'll go ahead and kind of ask a few questions in that, in that general area. Um, so first of all, did you know Gary Caldwell? Um, Very well. Okay. Yes, and uh, <clears throat> and Randy Johnson also. Uh, right after those murders were 
committed uh, within one or two hours, they said, this is the Lafferty's. And we knew pretty much it was Ron and Dan Lafferty. And because I had stopped the vehicle so many times, I said, I've got a description of the license plate of the vehicle. And I called my wife and I said, you get the kids and you load them in that car and you go up to your mother's house in Idaho. I says, Ron and Dan Lafferty have just committed a double murder and I want you out of that house. I feared for my own family. Oh, understandable. Yeah. Yeah. I then worked 12-hour shifts, seven days a week, and I had my shotgun out, and I went everywhere I could think of for the next two weeks looking where would the Lafferty's go, and I was looking for Ron and Dan, and I thought when I find them, they better give up with their hands in the air. From what I understand, um, Alan Lafferty when he returned home, it was about 8 p.m. He had been working um, um, outside of the county on, on a job. And he returned home. And uh, long story short, he obviously he found his wife and daughter and had to go over to a neighbor's to make the phone call. And um, I understand that, of course, with any time you have a crime like this, the police are going to first... Uh, consider the husband uh, slash father uh, as the as the primary uh, suspect, but um, within a very short time, and as you said, within a, at least two hours, they realized it was uh, Ron and, and Dan. Within at least two hours, they had an idea that it was the Lafferty brothers, and um, and they uh, I know that they put out uh, an APB on them. Uh, and you commented that uh, you were trying to figure out where would they have gone and were trying to go to the various places that you thought that they might have been. Uh, it, when they arrested um, Carnes and Knapp, how much did uh, those two men talk? Well, Chip Carn and uh, I think it was Richard Knapp. Was it there. was, yeah. Yeah, Richard Knapp, uh, they said, they gave them all the evidence they needed. They told them they'd gone to Wendover, of course, and mm-hmm. and that they had got away from Lafferty's, had taken the car, and had discarded out the window as they were driving the murder instruments. And they got over by Palisades uh, Reservoir in uh, Idaho, Wyoming, and discarded the uh, uh, briefcase of Dan's, which included his journal. He kept a very accurate journal. And uh, then they fled on over to Cheyenne, Wyoming, and that's where they were arrested. And, and I understand that most of uh, the evidence uh, uh, they actually were able to retrieve. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah they retrieved the briefcase, the journal, the murder weapon. Uh, they'd sawed a, shot, a shotgun off. Mm-hmm. Um, that was another thing. So I was told, and this is hearsay, but I was told that they had taken these instruments, a straight razor and a shotgun, they sawed the barrel off over at uh, their parents' house in Springville, and then they consecrated them for the removal of these individuals that it, they'd felt had wronged them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt that his mother should have been charged with the crime. She was present at that time, as I understand. She was never charged. Uh, 
that's conspiracy to commit murder. Mm-hmm. And she's a witness to that. Uh, one other interesting note. So I was told uh, that how they had killed Brenda. And I, in fact, I sat in court and listened to the autopsy report and everything. Basically killed her three different ways. Uh, they beat her. They tied a vacuum cord around her neck and they slit her throat. And they slid it so hard, they nearly severed her spinal column. And then uh, Dan went in and killed Erica, the baby, mm-hmm. with a straight razor. And uh, he made a comment, or Ron made a comment to Dan. Uh, I couldn't have done that. And Dan said he was no problem, or words to the effect of the Lord was with me, or words of that effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, this is all hearsay. This is just testimony that came out. And it came out through Chip and this uh, Knapp because they were there at the time. They, of course, had tried to go over to the state president's house to murder him. Uh, a low, as I recall his name was. Uh, uh, Stowe. Stowe. And yeah. uh, Lowe was the... And uh, Chloe, Chloe Lowe. Yeah, Chloe Lowe. Chloe Lowe was the state president, or the state relief society. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if she's ward or stake. She was a relief society president yeah. that had uh, convinced them, their wives, to leave them. Right. Both Ron and Dan at this point had been excommunicated. Now, I don't know exactly when they were excommunicated. I thought Dan was excommunicated because of his criminal activity involving my story and going to prison. Uh, Randy Johnson claims he was excommunicated before that. So I don't know. Uh, so I, I, right. but I do know he was excommunicated. And mm-hmm. so there was, and then of course, Alan didn't follow their beliefs because of Brenda. And then that's what led to Brenda's demise. Yes. So. So, um, were you involved in the trials of Dan and Ron uh, Lafferty? Were were you a witness for no, that? Or? No, I had nothing to do with the murder uh, investigation. Uh, the only thing I did do is the very day of the murder, I contacted the American Fork Police Department with the description of the vehicle, uh, white station wagon, and a license plate number. And so they immediately put out an APB all points bulletin on that view. Mm-hmm. That's my only involvement. Uh, so I had nothing to do with the investigation thereof. The only thing I had after that was uh, Gary Caldwell and Randy Johnson would contact me and kind of update me of what they had learned and what they had found. And as soon as they found Lafferty's and arrested him over in Circus Circus Reno, they notified me. They knew that I had, I was worried. Yeah, I was worried for the safety of my own family. Yes. And so that was a big relief off of my mind to find out that they'd been arrested. Absolutely. In in your view, what impact do you think the murders had on Utah Valley, um, Utah County residents, uh, and, and just Utah Valley in general? I think the biggest impact is... Like I say, when Dan Lafferty started writing his beliefs on constitutionalism, he had a huge following. And, of course, we don't want any of us to have big government telling us how to run our lives. And maybe we start looking at some of the laws that are on the books and say, why do we have those laws? Is that infringing on my personal rights? And the more 
he got deeper into this and got more in trouble. And then, of course, now they're doing murders. Their following dropped significantly. And so uh, the impact that I felt was uh, people woke up to say, whoa, these, there's some real nuts out there. And you got to be careful on who you listen to. Uh, today, we have the exact same problem. It's called the Internet. Yeah. Uh, I was talking with a neighbor of mine, and this is a little off the side, but about people who leave the church and how they will go on the Internet and believe things that are written, and they have no idea who wrote these. Instead of going, we have a, an, it's called the Gospel Library, that is just a wonderful tool mm-hmm. And if you have a question, there's an answer in that gospel library. And my neighbor, who's a state patriot, says, if you're on a desert and you're looking for a drink, why don't you go to the Oasis? And the Oasis is the gospel library where there's all the answers are there if you have questions. And the church has been very open on all the topics. So anyway, that's another side note, but... Uh, that's a good point, though. Um, yeah, the, so, um, when you, uh, when you would talk with the officers involved, uh, with the, uh, with the case, um, there's, there's, there's debate as to how much with the murders that took place, how much was it religiously based and how much was it, uh, we're going to get revenge because these individuals helped um, our wives uh, leave us, uh, and and so do do you know? Did the officers ever um, kind of indicate as to whether it was religious based or it was revenge or a combination? Everything I saw in relation to the investigation by the officers was based on very professionalism. There's a crime being committed here. We're solving this crime, and we're going to bring those to justice that, that committed this crime. I never saw anything, any religion, enter into it one way or the other. Okay. It was uh, very professionally handled. The American Fort Police Department and all agencies, that included the FBI and everybody else that was involved with it, it was a crime scene, and they were investigating a crime and bringing the criminals to justice. That's what I saw. Yeah, that's good. And, yeah, I mean, obviously, they were two absolutely horrendous murders. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I can well imagine the desire um, of the various law enforcement officials and the professionalism in trying to get this taken care of. Do you think that the Lafferty's extreme behavior, um, particularly when it came to um, uh, their their views, um, the revelation of to to put these people out of the way, etc. Um, do you think that this extreme behavior and the murders were caused or uh, had a foundation in the teachings and history of the LDS Church? Well. Well, they obviously, like I say, when I arrested Dan and he told me to read Doctrine and Covenants 98, he'd always, he obviously had been reading his scriptures. Now the interpretation thereof and the application thereof, I think were their own creations. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly wasn't anything from the church, but uh, they definitely were radical in their beliefs, and uh, they were using church uh, doctrine to try to justify their actions. Those are the questions that I had. Do you have any other thoughts regarding your interaction with Dan Lafferty or what you saw uh, from the case that you think might be of interest? There was a group back in the 1990s that were going up the state capitol that were trying to establish rule of law in Utah based on a Supreme Court justice and his writings back in the 1790s. And what his writings was, which was a minority decision, not a majority, was that a jury could be triers of the law and not just triers of the fact. And that's what Dan was trying to say is, and that, that whole decision was determined in Marbury versus Madison, where they said the Supreme Court determines the constitutionality of a law. If you feel a law is unconstitutional, you take it through the courts, and the Supreme Court in Marbury versus Madison said the Supreme Court determines constitutionality. Juries do not determine constitutionality. The juries are triers of the fact, and the facts are presented before them. They're not triers of the law. And that's kind of what Dan was trying to do is, uh, these laws are unconstitutional, so we don't need to obey them. In other words, the individual was judging the law, and that's what he was asking the jury to do, is you have, as a jury, you have the right to judge this law, and you have the right to say this law is unconstitutional. And if it's unconstitutional, then we don't have to obey it, i.e., no registration, no insurance, no safety inspection, obey the speed limit, etc. Do any of you have any questions that that I may have missed? There was one thing that you mentioned in one of the emails that you didn't mention here, and that's about uh, what Ron said when he was arrested. Yeah, so that was a good thing. I don't know if you wanted. Oh, Dan. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, it was Randy Johnson that told me that, and I talked with him today, and he doesn't remember that. Oh, okay. And he said that would be hearsay. And I said, yeah, I heard you say it. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't there. And Randy wasn't there. It was the FBI agent that told Randy. And when Randy got home, he, they asked Randy and, and, um, extradited him. And when he got home, he called me and he says, Hey, I got a story for you to put in your journal. I said, what's that? He says, when they put the gun, I told you he put it at the back of his head. I talked to Randy today, said they put the gun underneath Dan's chin and said, FBI, you're under arrest. He turned and looked at him and said, well, thank God it's not Les Langford. He'd have killed me or he'd have shot me or where's that? Randy says, I don't remember that at all. (laughs) And Randy, I says, Randy, you called and told me that. And he says, I don't remember that at all. it's what he, I remember and what he, re, but he called me after he got home to tell me, put this in your journal. Did you, did you keep a journal uh, no. during that time? <laughs> no. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> because that is a good story. <laughs> well, what I did do, and I should tell you this, uh, in the late 1980s and early 1990s, I was writing 
stories for law enforcement. Oh. Okay. And they were being published. And the Utah Highway Patrol contacted me and they said, we want you to write the history of the Utah Highway Patrol. And we want you to have it ready for the centennial of Utah, 1996. This is in 1994. And I says, okay. Uh, and I put four stipulations on them. Number one, they have to review everything that I write and they have to approve it. And if they don't like it, they can change it. It's their history. Mm -hmm. Number two, I have to have total access to all the records. No files are closed. And number three, I have to be given one day a week to do this. I've got two years to write this. I can't be just... And, it, and uh, the last one was I asked for... There was a secretary and a lieutenant colonel that were up at headquarters. I asked that they would be my proofreaders because they were excellent in English. That they would be my proofreaders and that they would review everything. They agreed. And I wrote the Lafferty incident. And that's what I have here today. Oh. And this is what was published uh, in 1996. And uh, it's actually on the internet right now. This Is it? Yes. Okay, I'm going to be going and looking for that. And I can show you exactly where it is. Okay. It's, it's on my website. I have a website. Oh, okay. And I also have a ton of church stuff on my website. Oh, well then I'm so. Definitely interested. <laughs> anyway, uh, that, but I, 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 anyway, there's a lot of details here and you may be interested in, so I'll yeah. leave that with you. Oh, thank you. Certainly. And I'll, right. show, and I'll show you how to get to that website. And yeah, I am interested. Yeah. That's, that's excellent. Thank you.